This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the Human Action Podcast. And as promised, we've been delving in to a variety of Rothbard texts this year after having gone through his opus, Man, Economy, and State, last year. So we're focusing on some of the smaller books. And we've gone through several of those over the last couple of weeks, enjoyed those shows. But it was time, it's high time, that we tackle over a series of shows. It'll probably be three or four weeks. Uh, uh, really, probably his second most important work after Man, Economy, and State, which is his ethical normative treatment of p- the political philosophy of liberty, which he titled The Ethics of Liberty. This book came out in 1982. It was published by New York University Press, an academic publishing house. There's a little bit of a backstory to that, the fact that the Mises Institute didn't publish this book, the fact that we don't own the rights is often uh, something I hear about from people. They say, well, Jeff, why don't you have the Ethics of Liberty in PDF or HTML format on the Mises.org website? Why don't you have your own copy of this? Well, it's because of copyright and because we are occasionally from time to time threatened by New York University Press if we put a PDF or something up in this book. So they own the rights. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we've paid them over the years. We've licensed our own version of the book, and that's the version we'll use for today's discussion, which came out in 1998. We have paid them to do an audio book narrated by the late Jeff Riggenbach. Uh, so they've allowed us to do these things, but we can't uh, just post the book as a free read on our website. So it's one of those books where you're going to have to go buy it if you want to read it. But I thought nobody would be a better guest for today's opening show where we're really going to get into a discussion of natural law than our own senior fellow, Walter Block, the great Walter Block, who, of course, many of you know, is a very prolific author and a professor at Loyola in New Orleans. So all that said, good morning, Walter. Good morning, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you, as always. Well, I was going through some of my notes on this book and some of the introduction and preface by Murray. He actually wrote the bulk of this in 74, 75, although it, it didn't appear till 82. And he it's interesting, he thanks Charles Koch, who is one of his benefactors at the time, for giving him, you know, the uh, the financial wherewithal to have the time to write this. So, it, and and it, as Hans Hoppe points out in his lengthy introduction to the book, this was, this was, you know, a bit of a low ebb for Rothbard's career when he wrote it. Well, um, I, I suppose that's true. It took uh, eight years from the time he wrote it to the time it got published. Uh, and usually an author likes to see his book uh, out not in eight years, not in eight months, but eight weeks. So um, uh, this was a bit of, of a low, especially, um, uh, you know, I mean, at one time, Charles Koch and Murray Rothbard were, were buddies, were friends, were collaborators, were uh, fellow travelers, were I don't know what, um, uh, how to describe it. And then um, things uh, fell apart and they were no longer um, buddies or, or anything, and if anything, enemies. And I don't know, in, in my view, this is too bad because um, Charles Koch, I mean, his middle name is Money, and uh, he he is uh, promoting liberty in the way he sees fit. And it's just unfortunate that the, the two uh, had to separate. And I don't know, uh, Murray has passed away, and, and Charles is elderly now. He's even older than me, and I'm considered elderly. I'm almost 80. And um, hopefully one day uh, uh, this um, dispute, the, this fight will, will end, and it won't be kept up by... Um, uh, the followers of both people, and and I, I suppose you and I are certainly followers of Murray Rothbard. Although I have been um, subsidized by Charles Koch as well, uh, so uh, these it's just an unfortunate thing, as far as I'm concerned, for the liberty movement. Because if the the two sides were together again, as once they were, uh, the prospects for liberty would be even better. Well, let me ask you, what was your relationship with Rothbard in the middle '70s? Obviously, you had met him by this point. Were you aware that he was writing this book? I think, you know, my my recollection, I, I met Murray in 1965. Uh, what happened was uh, I, I was sort of a, a Randian or an objectivist, uh, not really. Uh, I wasn't a member of the inner circle or the cult or anything like that. But um, I certainly agreed with their economics, which was mainly um, Mises. Uh, Ayn Rand and uh, Nathaniel Brandon uh, revered Mises. And, uh, you know, I, I liked Mises. And uh, the first economics book I ever read was uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, which is certainly Rothbardian um, 
Uh, I met Murray in 65 and he converted me to anarcho-capitalism in about 10 minutes, mainly pulling Hazlitt on me. He said, well, you know, um, uh, you're, uh, you see clearly why uh, the post office should be privatized because, you know, uh, they can't lose out. If they lose money, they never go broke and there's no competition. Well, why can't that work for police and armies and courts? And um, <laughs> Murray really flabbergasted me, and I've been a friend of his uh, pretty much ever since then. I was part of the living room crowd. We'd go over to his um, apartment, and we'd play Risk, and we'd um, laugh laugh into, into the wee hours of the day, uh, of the night. The big problem I had with Murray was stomach cramps, because uh, <laughs> it would just keep me laughing for hour after hour. And, uh, you know, you do that, and, and all of a sudden, your stomach starts hurting. So I was uh, a friend of Murray's uh, for many, many years. I, I moved out of New York City in 1979, and I got a job at the Fraser Institute in Canada, Vancouver, uh, in 79. But I was a friend of Murray's. And I remember uh, going through the um, pre-publication version of several of Murray's books with, with the living room crowd, the, the Leonard Liggio and, and Joe Peden and Walter Grinder and... Um, uh, I don't know, Jerry Wallows, Bob Smith, uh, a whole bunch of people. And, and we would go looking for typos. I don't remember if it was this book or For a New Liberty or, or which book it was. So I think a lot of people think of you, Walter, as the North Star in, in terms of you're a de deontological libertarian. You're not a consequentialist. And that's really what you're known for. Uh, do you think you got that from Murray or from this book specifically? Well, I, I like to think that everything good that I have that I have I got from Murray. <laughs> he's he's my my north star. He's my guru, my mentor. Uh, I'm also a consequentialist in the sense that I think that if we follow the non-aggression principle and private property rights, uh, we will also have a, a good world. But uh, I, I certainly I think my contributions, to the extent that I have any original contributions, as you say, are mainly in deontology. And certainly I got that from Murray, but I, I think, you know, I, I pretty much got everything that I have intellectually from Murray. Uh, it's interesting that, you know, at that time when I met Murray, I was still, um, I hadn't got my PhD yet, and I was a student of Gary Becker's, and Murray tried to convince me of Austrian economics. And that took a, an awful long time, it must have taken two or three years, because I could never get, for the longest time, I could never get my head around the synthetic a priori statement. Namely, something that is necessarily absolutely true, the denial of which is a self-contradiction, and yet it has something to do with the real world. I was trained uh, by Gary Becker as a sort of a logical positivist. Mm -hmm. Namely, if it's necessarily true, it's just the tautology. And it's just the way we use words like bachelors or unmarried men. But if, if, it, if it has something to do with the real world, well, then you have to test it. It's an empirical issue, and, and there's no laws in economics. It's just hypotheses. So I had a, a lot of trouble getting that through my thick head. But finally, um, I, I did, and, and I'm an Austrian also, thanks to Murray. But, but you're right. Uh, his uh, uh, advocacy of deontology, namely uh, just following wherever it leads, the non-aggression principle and private property rights, um, I, I think is just brilliant and scintillatingly wonderful. And, and I'm happy to credit Murray um, with pretty much everything that I know and, and uh, revere in, in this regard. So for anybody unfamiliar, Gary Becker was a Nobel Prize winner who was also Walter's uh, mentor as he studied for his PhD. And I know that you have some correspondence over the years back and forth with Gary Becker by email before he passed away. Do you know if he, did he ever meet or interact with Murray Rothbard? No, I don't, not to my knowledge. He might well have. Uh, I don't know that he did, okay. but uh, you know, he regarded Austrian economics as a cult. Him mm -hmm. and uh, Jim Buchanan had interactions with both of them, especially Gary Becker. And uh, they, they regarded um, Austrian economics as a cult. And, um, uh, I, I, my PhD dissertation was on rent control, and uh, as would be expected in a, in a neoclassical school, I had to do a lot of econometric regression equations. And my independent variable was uh, the amount of uh, rent control that a city had in my observations with cities. 
1941, I think it was, or was it 42? Uh, every city had rent control. And then in 45, uh, when the war was over, a lot of cities um, ended their rent control, but in dribs and drabs over the years. So different cities had rent control for different amounts of time. And my thesis was that the more rent control a city had, the worse housing would be holding everything else I could think of constant, such as, um, I don't know, weather or income or wealth or uh, whatever. And most of the time I got um, the correct, uh, what do you call it, correct signal, namely uh, there was a, a negative relationship between more rent control and, and quality of housing. And usually I got statistical significance and uh, all was well, but every once in a while I would get the wrong sign. Uh, namely more rent control meant the better housing. And sometimes, God forbid, it was even statistically significant. So what Gary Becker should have said if he were really a uh, non-cultist, and my thesis is that if you scratch a good, Aust a good neoclassical economist, you're going to find an Austrian, and Gary Becker was certainly a good neoclassical economist. What Gary Becker should have said is, oh, I've got this young genius. I was young then. Uh, this is in the, <laughs> in the uh, 60s. Uh, I've got this young genius who's going to turn over everything we know about rent control. Uh, Walter Block has shown that the rent control helps housing. But he didn't say that. What he said was, go out and do it again until you get it right. Well, what's testing what? I mean, uh, is my econometrics testing the apodictic necessary condition that other things equal the more rent control, the worse housing? No, uh, rather uh, the uh, apodictic uh, thing that we know about rent control is testing my econometric uh, results. So Gary Becker really was an Austrian deep down. Because he was saying, go do, go do it again until you get it right. Namely, he knew what was right. He knew the, the uh, economic law was that rent control is going to screw up housing. Whereas what he should have said, if he wanted to really cleave to his uh, neoclassical economics, he should have said, well, um, uh, maybe the law is wrong because Walter has found out with, with his crummy econometric uh, equations that uh, rent control uh, uh, really helps housing. I mean, Bernie Sanders would love that. He loves rent, rent control. He favors rent control all over the place. And um, uh, Gary Becker should have supported Bernie Sanders, but he didn't. So he was really an Austrian, but he thought Austrianism was a cult. So I don't know. I, I, um, I never could convince Gary uh, of his error. Well, it wasn't from lack of trying, right, Walter? Oh, I, I, uh, I'm, I don't like to brag, but when it comes to pushiness, I'm number one. I, I keep going. Well, and as a New Yorker, you knew a lot about rent control, right? That was a no, no coincidence that that was your thesis. Now, I, I want to talk about the underpinning of the book, which I think Hans Hoppe does a good job of explaining. He's got a lengthy introduction, and, and I really encourage people to go to Mises.org and find this book, The Ethics of Liberty, the 1998 version with Hoppe's introduction. And so Rothbard wants to create an ethical bridge, a normative bridge between economics and laissez-faire political philosophy, and he roots this in property, which he views as a corollary that which necessarily flows from self-ownership. But what struck me as interesting in Hoppe's intro was he said, you know, for all of our talk in economics, we don't have a really coherent theory of property. And so how can we understand all these things like scarcity and and uh, trade-offs without having a theory of property? And he says, this was this is sort of What's so important about Rothbard's effort here is that we need a theory of property, and property per se, it either implies or requires some sort of ethical or normative justification. Yes, um, I, I think that um, Hans has done more than most people in, in, uh, in uh, solidifying that very point. And certainly, uh, Murray uh, would ground um, ethics in property rights. Uh, I mean, the question is... Um, you're now wearing a nice blue shirt. Suppose I come over and grab it. Have I violated your rights? Well, it all depends upon who is the rightful owner of that shirt. Now, I never saw the shirt before. Uh, it's your shirt. Don't worry, I'm not coming over and grabbing your shirt. But the point is that we have no way of telling whether I'm a thief or not when I grab the shirt that's on your back, because just because the shirt is on your back doesn't mean you own it. So we have to have a theory of ownership. And uh, Hans, uh, I'm a big, big fan of Hans on many things, but uh, perhaps the thing that I'm most uh, a fan of his on is his um, argument from argument, namely that uh, we get to um, 
determine the, the justification of the non-aggression principle based on the fact that the only way you can settle anything is through argument. And then Han says, well, what do you need for, for argument to take place? Well, one of the things you need for argument to take place is ownership of the self and ownership of a place to stand and ownership of clothing and stuff like that. So um, uh, Han, the way I see it is sort of like a trinity. There's John Locke, there's Murray Rothbard, and then there's Hans Hoppe in terms of um, a justification of uh, homesteading. And the three of them, I think, have done more than any other three people. In, in not not the Lockean proviso, where um, you know, uh, as soon as uh, most of the good land is taken up, well, then the uh, Lockean theory no longer applies. Whereas Murray and Hans would uh, keep going and, and saying uh, homesteading applies um, no matter what, and until every square inch of property is owned, including waterways and and every bit of land. So I, I think that um, you have to ground. Um, economics in, in and ethics in private property rights. Private property rights are very, very important. And we get to own ourselves because we've sort of homesteaded ourselves. And then we get to um, own uh, bits of nature uh, by mixing our labor with the land and, and with, um, uh, with natural resources. And then, then we have a, a strong foundation on the basis of which we can um, uh, justify libertarianism. So you consider yourself obviously a natural law adherent. Um, did you arrive at that from the first few chapters of this book? I mean, talk to us about the uh, Walter Block version of natural law and why it matters. Well, um, no, I, I didn't get it from this book because this book came out in 82 uh, and, and I was a, a Rothbardian in 65. Uh, so I, I didn't get it from this book, but this book uh, certainly uh, solidified things. Um, um, you know, it's interesting uh, if you compare natural rights with Hans's argument from argument. Murray himself said that um, Hans's um, justification for the non-aggression principle was superior to his views on on natural rights, which is very strange because when Hans came over to to this country to to the United States, he was just a kid. He was like I don't know, late twenties or something, and Murray was I don't know, uh, forty five or fifty, and Murray was the the cock of the walk or the king of libertarianism or Mr. Libertarian. And Hans is just some young kid. Now, look, suppose a, a young Randian came up with something that Ayn Rand thought was better than what she did. What she would do is uh, blackball this young kid and she would kick him out of the movement. Well, Murray didn't do that at all. Instead, Murray uh, supported Hans in this. So I think that this really does Murray uh, a lot of credit because when you're the leader of, of the movement and some follower of yours, and Hans is a follower of Murray's, uh, comes up with something that you think is even better, usually you you the human nature is to is to not uh, support that. But Murray, I think, gets great credit for uh, acknowledging uh, this sort of a thing. Uh, so yes, I'm a, a natural rightist in in the sense that I think people have human rights. Um, there is one area where I disagree with Murray, and this is on page 24 of The Ethics of Liberty, uh, right at the top. Um, and, you know, sometimes I joke that I'm, I'm not really an anarcho-capitalist. There is room for government, and um, my two uh, exceptions, uh, the two justifications for the government is, first, government should compel everyone to read Man, Economy, and State, and Human Action, and secondly, pagination. Because you know, different versions of different books have slightly different pagination. So, you know, in my in my minarchist days, I say those are the two um, legitimate roles of government. Of course, I'm just kidding. But, but um, so when I say page 24, I don't know, what, you know, what page it is in your book. But what he starts out here is saying, particularly striking is the flaming prose of the great abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison applying natural rights theory in a revolutionary way to the question of slavery. The right to enjoy liberty is inalienable. Now, that's where I depart from Murray. And, you know, whenever I disagree with Murray or Hans or, or Mises or any of those people, I have this niggling feeling in the back of my mind that I'm wrong because, you know, those people are, you know, really um, brilliant. And I'm just a plotter. I'm, I'm, I, I keep pushing, but I, I, I think of myself more as a plotter. Well, if, if liberty is inalienable, that means you can't sell it. Well, the the scenario I like to pose in opposition to what Murray and Hans and, and pretty much every other libertarian, with the exception of Nozick and a few other people, is the following. My son, God forbid, has a horrible disease, and it'll cost $20 million to cure him. Now, I don't have anything like $20 million. 
And you, Jeff, have long wanted me to be your slave. I'll come to Auburn. I'll pick cotton there. I'll um, uh, teach economics. And if you don't like the way I'm doing it, you can whip me and you can even kill me. I'm a slave, but I've agreed to it. Why did I agree? Because I value my son's life more than my freedom. Why did you agree to it? Because you are very rich. You're a Charles Koch. You valued my servitude more than the 20 million. So we each gained, as we know from every voluntary um, interaction, uh, that there's a benefit in the ex ante sense, at least, and usually in the ex post sense as well. So um, my view is that if you can't sell it, you really don't own it. There was this case where Wittgenstein uh, was walking uh, along uh, the sidewalk uh, with Norman Malcolm, his um, philosophy student at the time, although Norman Malcolm is now a, a famous philosopher in his own right. And, and Wittgenstein said to Norman Malcolm, I'll give you all these trees. They're your trees, provided you uh, don't prevent the previous owners from doing whatever they want with the, these trees, and you don't do anything with these trees. The point is, you're not really owning those trees because ownership means that you have a right to um, exclude other people from the trees and, and to do whatever you want with the trees. Well, part of, look, if you really own that shirt, part of your ownership of that shirt is to be able to sell it. And Jeff, if I tell you, you can't sell that shirt, well, to an extent, I've attenuated your ownership over that shirt. You don't really fully own it. You, you can give it away, you can burn it, but you can't sell it. Well, if I say you can't give it away and you can't burn it and you can't sell it and you can't prevent the previous owner, namely me, from doing what I want with that shirt, well, then you don't own that shirt at all. So my problem here is I think that if you can't sell something, you don't really own it. Well, if you can't sell yourself, you don't really own yourself. Well, if you don't really own yourself, well, we've right. got problems. Right, but there's a difference between the concept of self and one's body, physical body. There's a difference between one's time and labor and one's will. So I think this is a pretty pedantic point you're making, Walter. <laughs> In other words, you don't, you're not alienating your will. You're not alienating your – some people believe in a soul or a spirit – uh, you know, a personhood or self. Stefan Kinsella talks about this. There's a difference between owning your your physical person and not allowing anyone to aggress against it and owning some sort of more metaphysical version of yourself. So, I, I mean, but but here's the thing, Walter, here's the thing about part one of this book is that I think we have a sense, and Judge Napolitano is great on this, that somehow natural law is a conservative doctrine. And and as Murray points out, it isn't conservative at all, because first of all, you're you're saying that natural law and reason are compatible, that you can discern natural law by reason itself without any uh, requirement for faith, even in the in, in the Thomist philosophy, and that it can exist, you know, independent of theology. So this strikes me as a, a huge blow against relativism. Murray even brings up Leo Strauss. You know, reason can't tell us which ends are good, only which means uh, get us to them. Well, that's what relativism says. But, but uh, Murray Rothbard and Leo Strauss would say, no, no, no. We can actually, you know, use reason to discern good ends. And I would say anyone alienating their personhood <laughs> into slavery is, is a bad end. Well, I don't think it's a bad end. I, I value my son's uh, life more than my freedom. I think it's a great end that that he's alive and I, I've now lost my um, my my freedom. Uh, I don't think it's pedantic, and, and and I agree with you about the will. But my answer to that is will schmill. I'm not talking about the will. What I'm talking about is if you. Uh, whip me or kill me? Are you a murderer? I mean, this is uh, goes to the very core of what libertarianism is all about. Now, with regard to Kinsella, Stefan Kinsella, who is another brilliant, uh, exquisite um, libertarian philosopher, although he's a law lawyer, but but he, I, I count him as a brilliant uh, scholar. I, I got into it once with him on a specific performance contract. So here's the deal. I'm a tightrope walker, and I walk along this tightrope, and um, I hire you, Jeff, to hold a net under me. And now in the middle of my performance, you decide to quit. And I have a gun, and, and I, I tell you, Jeff, if you walk away with that, with that net, I'm going to shoot you. And uh, the question is, do I have a right to impose upon you a specific performance contract? And Murray and Stefan say no. But I say yes, uh, just because, um, mm -hmm. you, you know, um, 
you, you know, Murray talks about, well, I hire you to sing at my wedding and, and, and you don't come. And, you know, the usual answer to that is, well, you have to post a bond. And if you don't show up, you forfeit your bond. But I would say there should be two kinds of contracts. One, where there's just the bond and the other, you agree to have a specific performance contract. I mean, contracts are pretty important. And if you agree to hold that net, you got to hold that net. You just can't walk away. And if I agree to be your slave, I, I can't run away. If I run away, I'm stealing your property. So I, I don't think this is pedantic at all. I think this uh, goes to the very core of what libertarianism well, is all okay. about. You, you know what this sounds like, Walter? Uh, this sounds like situational ethics. Uh, could you elaborate on that? Well, if um, the tightrope walker has a contract with the guy to hold the net beneath him, it depends on the situation. If he shoots him during his performance because he's walking away, a lot of people would say, well, that's justified because if he falls off the tightrope, now he's going to splat on the concrete. But if he shoots him in any other situation, that's, that's clearly not allowable because he's not going to die or nothing that severe is going to happen. So um, that sounds relativistic. That sounds very unrandian, the idea that ethics are situational. <laughs> it sounds very highly subjective, Walter. You're sneaking ec economic subjectivity into objective normative ethics. Well, I guess we'll have you to sneak. agree to <laughs> I, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one. But, uh, but, so okay, not but, get it settled. But let me just let's just continue a little bit on this conservative thing. In other words, a lot of people, uh, Mises himself, we'll get to Mises here in a bit and his critiques of natural law. But this idea of natural law science, you know, well, when what Murray points out when when we see an apple fall, we say, well, that's in the nature of the apple; it responds to gravity. That's that's part of its nature. So natural doesn't mean mystical. The, the, the Randians hated anything that smacked of mysticism. So natural, Murray argues, is, doesn't mean mystical. And so I guess the question for Walter Block is, is, is Murray right? Does man have a nature? Is it observable? Oh, yes. I think man has a, a nature and, and it's observable and, and it's uh, pro-freedom. We yearn for freedom. Even, um, even thieves want freedom for themselves. Even thieves object to being stolen from. So I think it's very natural. Even little kids, you know, um, have the idea it's my toy and, and you're grabbing my toy and you shouldn't be grabbing uh, my toy. And I, I think the brilliance of Murray's science of liberty, if I could put it that way, is it's not an empirical science. It's a logical science. Namely, you start with certain premises and you deduce from that. And uh, the way I, I sometimes uh, like to illustrate this is sort of like an Indian TP. You know, uh, uh, where you have each, uh, you have maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 um, uh, sticks, each one 20 feet high, and they all cross uh, maybe uh, three or four feet from the top. And, and uh, so you, you get a, a teepee, and the, the little bit of the stick above where they all cross is justifications of the non-aggression uh, principle. And uh, one of them would be natural law. Another would be the argument from argument. Another one would be religion. Uh, God says, uh, you know, we should not uh, be killing and murdering and raping and stealing from each other. And uh, Ayn Rand would say A is A is, is the justification of the non-aggression principle. But then what, what the science of liberty, uh, the way I see Murray conducting this is you start with the non-aggression principle and then you deduce, well, what's our position on um, uh, prostitution? Uh, what's our position on unions? What's our position on uh, rent control? What's our position on minimum wage? What's our position on free trade? Uh, so Murray's science of liberty, the way I see it, would be deductions from, from the major premises of the non-aggression principle and private property rights. And he does so brilliantly. But I want to stress this, that he's talking about that there's, there's a goodness or badness relative to man's nature. And so this is somehow objective. And this is a, a very different from a wholly subjective economics approach, right? In other words, we're making a leap. Well, I don't know if I'd want to say we're making a leap. Maybe I'd want to say that. I'm not sure because the reason I don't like the leap is because uh, it's sort of like a leap of faith and we don't have – Yeah, not necessarily under. a stretch, but a leap. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, I, I, would, I would just say we start from very firm foundations of the non-aggression principle and, and – um, private property rights based on homesteading. And if we stick to that uh, rigidly, maniacally, uh, no matter what, we can come up with the right conclusions. And um, like one of my books is we should privatize uh, bodies of water. 
well, this is almost unheard of. You know, privatizing Mississippi River and, and the Atlantic Ocean is, is sort of crazy. But my lodestar in writing books like that, and I have three books on privatization. One is uh, oceans, one is roads, one is um, a space and the moon and the Mars. And all I'm doing is playing homage to Murray. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as true to Murray's insight about the non-aggression principle and private property rights and then just deducing like a maniac and applying it to where it's never been applied before. I remember that this sort of like my career is like that. Murray mentions blackmail in one sentence in um, Manny Commune State, just one sentence. And I must have written, I don't know, 20 articles on that, attacking everyone who disagrees with Murray on blackmail. And then I have a book on blackmail. So what I do, what my career is, is really extending what Murray said but keeping in mind his, his foundation of the non-aggression principle and private property rights based on homestay, and then just applying it to all sorts of things that either Murray didn't apply it to. I don't think he uh, came out in favor of uh, privatization of oceans. Uh, I'm sure he would agree with that, but uh, he, he never wrote about that. And on blackmail, I, I think he just wrote a, a sentence or two or three, and I wrote you know voluminously about that. So the way I see Murray's science of liberty and natural rights, we start off with the non-aggression principle and private property rights, and we deduce the hell out of them. Right. But of course, this process has its critics and Murray brings one up, this idea that is purely logical and deductive. For example, Hume. Hume had his famous, I guess, refutation of natural law in his view where he said, first of all, you've got this false is ought dichotomy between facts and values. So that's a critique. And also that uh, reason from which we try to explain natural law, well, that's really subject to our passions and emotions create our ends. And so Murray says, well, Actually, justice comes from reason, and we have a necessary social order. So, th you know, explain this split here between Hume and Murray Rothbard. Well, David Hume is um, a brilliant um, <clears throat> philosopher. By the way, uh, he was the one who converted me out of uh, theism and into um, atheism. I read his inquiry concerning natural religion, and um, I was uh, but, around 15 years old. But I, as, as an aside, I mean, prior to that, sorry to interrupt, but prior to that, as a boy, had you been a religious or observant Jew in any way? Had you been going to temple? Yeah, yeah. I was born mitzvah and um, at 13, and um, uh, I went to synagogue, uh, and, and I uh, took courses in Judaism and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And, um, you know, I was a believer. I, I wasn't... Um, uh, orthodox. I was more conservative. Because, uh, in, the, in Judaism, there are three levels. One is orthodox, the other is conservative, and then there's, um, what's, what's the third one called? Ah, can't think of it. Um, they're, they're the ones that believe in eating pork and stuff like that. <laughs> the, they're hardly Jewish at all. Uh, so I was in the middle um, uh, between orthodoxy and, and, and the other one that I can't think of right now. But, but did your atheism ultimately, uh, was that a source of upset for your parents? Well, my parents were what's called Rosh Hashanah Jews or Yom Kippur Jews. Uh, on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, uh, all of a sudden they got their Jew on and, and they got angry mm -hmm. at me because I wouldn't uh, respect the, the Jewish holidays. But on Saturday, uh, they didn't always go to temple. Although from age 13 to age 15, I, I was really into it. Well, the, the the Christian version of this is people who go to church on Easter and Christmas Eve only. Yeah, that would be uh, the equivalent. You sort of uh, adhere to it, but, but just superficially. Uh, I was a little bit more than my parents from age 13 to 15, but then at age 15, I, I became an atheist and I wasn't into the Judaism at all. Although, you know, later on, I had this friend and mentor, Lipa Dubrovsky, who was an Orthodox Hasidic Jew. And I studied the Talmud with him uh, for several years. We went over Baba Metzia and a whole bunch of other tractates. And, and the interesting thing was that the Talmud and libertarianism, uh, there wasn't a perfect overlap, but there was a great overlap between the two. It was just amazing to me to find out how much the Talmud and libertarianism overlap. Mm. And unfortunately, he passed away at the young age of 55, about mm. uh, 10 years ago. But... Uh, but again, I didn't approach it as a uh, as a believer, just as a, a matter of literature. Mm -hmm. So in any case, uh, David Hume, yes. uh, to get back to the is odd, David uh, Hume said you can't deduce a, um, an odd from an is. And I think Murray and Hans uh, both um, refuted that. I think uh, especially Hans with his argument from argument did refute 
the, um, hum, the Humean analysis of the it ought uh, impossibility of deducing the one from the other. Because what Hans said is, look, the only way you're going to get to any um, sense about anything is to argue. And, and what do you need to argue? Well, you need private property rights and the non-aggression principle. Well, uh, I once asked Hans about that, and he said he didn't uh, refute Hume. I think Hans, I disagree with Hans. I think Hans did refute Hume. And I think Murray, uh, his natural rights also would, namely that you look at man's nature, which is an is, what is man's nature, and then you deduce an ought. And the ought is, keep your goddamn mitts to yourself. Don't be grabbing other people uh, and their property without their permission. You can grab them with their permission. In, in a boxing match, you know, if we're in a boxing match and, and you punch me in the nose, I can't say, oh, you violated the right, of, you violated my, uh, my right to my nose because we'd agreed to be uh, punching ab above the belt. And also, you know, the voluntary sadomasochism, uh, you know, you, you can't complain about that. But apart from that, I, I think Murray brilliantly overturns Hume a, a, as well as uh, does Hans and, and deduces an ought from an is. And the is is man's nature. And man's nature is such that um, uh, it's wrong to, to be grabbing other people and, and, and their property without their permission. I'm struck, though, when I'm going through this, that there are a lot of people who don't even believe in the is. <laughs> in other words, po postmodernists, for example. So Murray is operating on a ground uh, of man's nature, and some people would simply object that that exists or is discernible. Well, nowadays we have the uh, the woke people and the uh, the cancel culture people, and and you know relativism. You know uh, what did the Mises call it? Um, uh, polylogism. Uh, the idea that, uh, by the way, uh, the word I was missing before is reform Judaism. Reform Judaism. There's reform, um, conservative, and orthodox. Uh, you get the wokesters and, and the, um, the snowflakes and, and the cancel culture and the politically correct people. And, and they, they uh, commit the fallacy that Mises talked about with uh, polylogism. You know, there's one logic for white, toxic white males like you and I. And uh, this is colonialism. Uh, you know, we believe that two plus two is four. Uh, but, you know, these other people talk about relativism. Two plus two equals four is um, uh, racist. You know, uh, look, I had a full head of hair before. Uh, look at me now. I don't have any hair because I pulled out all my hair based over. I'm kidding about that. I, I went naturally bald. But um, uh, th this is relativism um, up the wazoo. It, it, it's just uh, ludicrous and crazy that uh, different people have different logics. And, you know, there's black logic and white logic and, and gay logic and, and straight logic and uh, male logic and female. Well, maybe male and female. I'm, I don't want to get into that. But that's another issue. Um, as I tell my son sometimes, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. Well, so, some people throughout history, Walter, have suggested that men and women are different. So we'll just leave yeah, it at that. Oh. You, you're not the first to suggest that. But, <laughs> but, but let's, let's talk about this, this source of law because this is very near and dear to my heart. I'm, I'm a big believer in common law and where that could take us in a localist, decentralist fashion. I, and I think it's, it's the future, if not the only future for a country like the United States. So Murray Rothbard points out that there's, there's essentially three sources for law. We have you know, pure tradition and custom, the way things have always been done. And then we have the you know, purely positive law, the arbitrary uh, dictates of a, of a legislature or a state. And then we have this process of reason or discovery of natural law. And so by rejecting both the traditional, which is oftentimes bound up in religious view, of, of uh, law and its source, you know, Moses or, or whomever, and by also rejecting the idea of positive state law, what that leaves us with is natural is actually a radical concept. It's a modern concept in that sense. Yes. Um, you know, I wanted to say uh, some a little bit of good about uh, tradition. And um, I remember Hayek saying, look, uh, all tradition should be accepted unless we can come up with a reason why it, it's not good. For example, he said, the tradition of men wearing a tie, nothing really wrong with that. So, you know, accept that. Uh, on the other hand, you have this thing in uh, Sati in uh, India where a man dies and they push the woman on his funeral pyre. Uh, 
<laughs> now that's tradition. Uh, that's um, uh, law even uh, uh, in India. And um, uh, what Hayek uh, and what any libertarian would say is, you know, come on, get a life. That That's ridiculous. So there's nothing wrong with accepting tradition. And I think that's part of Murray's um, intellectual armature. Uh, there's nothing wrong with tradition. You know, like opening a door and maybe shaking hands or, you know, things like that. Uh, and we should accept all tradition. The presumption is the tradition, if it lasted for many centuries, there must be something good about it. And we can't think of what's good about it. So we still follow it anyway. Nothing wrong with it. Unless we see a reason why we should overturn it. And then we, we overturn it. So we're not really against tradition. We're guided by tradition because tradition is the amalgamation of human experience. And most of our traditions are innocuous, you know, like saying hello or, uh, I don't know, uh, things like that. Uh, present law, you really don't need a legislator to make present law. Well, you know, maybe, maybe you could make a little bit of a case for it because when um, electricity first came into being or when the radio first came into being, and here, uh, Coast was not so bad. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Coast, but on radio, Coast was pretty good. Namely, uh, this is private property rights in the ether or in the air, and we'd never had that before. And what Murray would say is, well, you know, you have to extrapolate from 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 reason. Namely, you have to apply fences on land to fences in in radio waves, and and you have to say, well, you know, if I'm broadcasting on um, um, 650 megahertz or whatever it is, and and you start broadcasting on 651 and you start jamming me, well, you're too close. Well, you have to go to 700 so that we can both have radio stations. Uh, without, um, so maybe you need a little bit of uh, legislative law for new kind of issues that have never been thought of by by, uh, by history. But apart from that, you know, we have all the laws we need. You know, keep your myths to yourself. It's a, it's a great law. No murder, no rape, no theft, whatever. Uh, and and again, the third one is uh, natural reason or logic. And again, we deduce from the non-aggression principle and private property rights based on homesteading, and we don't go too far wrong. So I want to draw people's attention to page 24 of this book because it has, I think, one of the best definitions of rights I've ever read. And now it's by Professor Sadowski, James Sadowski, who apparently you knew, Walter, and he's talking about rights, you know, purely in terms of people's property in their persons and material objects, rather than this sort of airy-fairy version of rights that we sometimes think of. And of course, for those of us who are irritated uh, by people's failure to understand a very important distinction between positive and negative rights, I think Professor Sadowski has given us just a, a great short paragraph to explain it. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, you know, Sadowski was a, um, a Jesuit priest, and Sadowski was a Rothbardian. Now, you might say, well, that's a contradiction. <laughs> you can't be a Rothbardian and a Jesuit priest. There are three Jesuit priests that I know of, uh, James Shaw, a guy named Francis, I think, and, and Jim Sadowski, who are um, uh, Jesuits. And, you know, I teach at a Jesuit school, Loyola. And my analysis of the Jesuits is that they're 180 degrees away from where they started. In 1540, the Jesuits and the Dominicans started the, um, the School of Salamanca. And the School of Salamanca was a precursor to Austrianism. You know, the just price was the market price. The just wage was the market wage. Profit was, was good. And now you look at most Jesuits, except for Sadowski and two or three others, and, and they're, uh, they're Marxists. Well, um, they're, they're just the opposite. They're socialists, uh, uh, which is, uh, you know, very much the opposite of the way uh, the Jesuit uh, order first started. So, yes, I, I knew uh, Jim Sadowski. Uh, he was part of the living room crowd. He would come to Murray's uh, living room and, and argue with Murray over, you know, very fine uh, points, but argue from within the Rothbardian uh, viewpoint. In other words, he accepted mm -hmm. the premises and he just came to different conclusions. And he would ask Murray about all sorts of weird questions like, suppose a monkey throws a man through the window who, you know, who pays for the window? Yeah, sort of exotic uh, kind of cases like that. So, yes. Uh, and shall I read or shall you read on page 24 what Sadowski says? Well, I guess the point is that the rights are in relation to individuals and in, in their material property. They're They're not something that... Uh, requires other people to do things. But go no, go ahead, read the quote. It's a great quote. And it, and for those of us who are irritated by the concept of positive rights, I think this is perhaps the best definition I've read 
of what I think negative rights are. Okay, Sadowski says, when we say that one has the right to do certain things, we mean this and only this. That would be immoral for another, alone or in combination, to stop him from doing this by use of physical force or the threat thereof. We do not mean that any use a man makes of his property with the limits set forth is necessarily a moral use. So take prostitution. Yes, take it. Uh, well, uh, the, you know, I'm not in favor of prostitution. <laughs> no, I, I don't go to prostitution. I just say, take, I just say, you know, take it to uh, where it should be. In other words, a lot of the goofy laws we have against prostitution actually force it into dangerous uh, locales and that sort of thing. So it's all it's all very silly, like any prohibition. Absolutely. Well, not any prohibition. I mean, we do want to prohibit murder, but uh, you know. I, Look, I have a wife, I have a daughter, I have a mother, I have a sister. Well, my mother passed away. I wouldn't want any of them to be a prostitute. But if they were, God forbid, I wouldn't want them to go to jail for it. Because if they limit themselves to consensual acts uh, between adults, uh, it's not a violation of rights. But, you know, we libertarians don't have to be hippies. We libertarians don't have to be uh, lefties. Uh, We libertarians don't have to like prostitution. We could say that prostitution is immoral, and that is my view uh, as it happens, but not qua libertarian, because I'm not a thick libertarian. I'm I'm a thin libertarian. Uh, Okay, but but how how about a community with an HOA, which says you may not engage in prostitution within this housing development, either as a provider or a customer? Oh, absolutely. They have that right. You know, I was once uh, visiting somebody at, at, a, at a condo and, and he was complaining. Uh, he was a libertarian. He's complaining that the condo makes all sorts of weird rules. You know, you have to have a certain kind of fence and even your draperies have to be a certain color. And he was complaining. And I said, hey, get a life. You agreed to this, for goodness sakes. If you didn't like it, go to another condo or, you know, don't go to a condo or don't go to a gated community. So obviously, now here, uh, here is an interesting um, thing where I got into it with the mosquito. Uh, we're talking about, what was it? Front lawn fornicators. And well, Dr. Block is referring to the blogger, Bionic Mosquito. Right. Yeah. Bionic Mosquito, a, a very um, insightful, incisive uh, libertarian theorist. But he and I disagreed on this. And uh, the front lawn fornicator gets out on his front lawn and, and starts fornicating. And But it's his front lawn. And, and fornicating on a voluntary basis is not a violation of rights. And yet it scares the horses and, and the kids. And, you know, it's a big pain in the neck. And what he says is you need, you need more than the non-aggression principle uh, to make libertarianism work. And I say, no, 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 you don't. All you have to do is have a HOA or a condo or a co-op or whatever. And you pass a rule that uh, no uh, front lawn fornicating. Uh, And there could be other uh, condos or HOAs where front lawn fornicating is required. Uh, Right. uh, Okay. Okay. But you know what's easier, Walter, than having a predatory state which passes unjust laws and enforces all this stuff by putting people in jail? And you know what's even better than having an HOA? is actually having a halfway decent society where it just never dawns on people to fornicate in the front yard. How about that? I mean, sometimes we overthink this stuff. Well, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, the, the, you know, when you said that, the, you know, uh, we shouldn't think of a, a good society where nobody would think of prostitution. Well, there are people that, you know, can't get the, a woman to go to bed with them unless they pay, and and should they have a right to do that? And should women have a right to sell their sexual services? Yes. Uh, again, I I personally don't adhere to that. I don't like it. Uh, I don't support it. But I don't want them to go to jail, and also, I don't want them excluded from society. I mean, because they're not violating rights. Well, let's get back briefly here to Mises. So the idea is that Mises made the argument for laissez-faire society based on purely utilitarian grounds, and then Murray Rothbard comes along in the ethics of liberty and creates a normative system or structure based on natural law to justify a laissez-faire society. And then at least in theory, Hoppe comes along and takes all of this a step further into a purely a purely argumentative or pure logic justification for laissez-faire without any normative component per se. So... When we go back to human action, there's several spots where we can find Mises' critiques, but I found one that I thought was pithy and, and pretty uh, bold. So I just want to get your take, Walter, on this. This is uh, 
towards the end of human action in a section called The Government and the Market. So I'm quoting Mises here. He says, from the notion of natural law, some people deduce, we've talked about that, the justice of the institution of private property in the means of production. Exactly what Murray attempted to do. Other people resort to natural law for the justification of the abolition of private property in the means of production. As the idea of natural law is quite arbitrary, such discussions are not open to settlement. So he's viewing this very differently. Well, I, I think um, Mises is wrong. I mean, with all due respect, Mises is um, either the first or the second best economist that ever lived, and Murray would be the other. And I'm not sure, just like I'm not sure about Bach and Mozart, I'm not sure about Murray and, and Mises. But I think Mises is wrong here. I, I, just because some people make a mistake in their deduction and deduce uh, from natural rights that uh, private property, I mean, what's his name? Um, who is the one that said property is theft? Proudhon. Proudhon said property is theft. And the whole point is you can't have theft unless you have private property. If we didn't have private property, there couldn't even be theft. So Proudhon is you know, just totally wrong. And Mises, I think, is wrong. Look, um, uh, seven is bigger than eight. Eight is bigger than nine. And therefore, seven is bigger than nine. I, I just made a uh, syllogism. Right. Seven is bigger than eight. Eight is bigger than nine. Therefore, seven is bigger than nine. Well, uh, my logic was impeccable, but I started out with the wrong premise and I came up with three fallacious um, uh, things. The major, the minor premise and the conclusion are all wrong. And yet my logic was correct. So that would be the opposite of what Mises is doing. What Mises is doing is saying, well, because some people use natural rights and they come up with the wrong conclusion, therefore natural rights is wrong. Well, that, that's crazy. You know, some people use logic and they come up with the wrong example. That doesn't mean logic is wrong. It means, as in my uh, example of seven, eight, and nine, that just means that they um, they deduced in, in they made a mistake in their deduction. Milton Friedman once said that um, if uh, mainstream economists disagree, they can resort to um, uh, empirical uh, econometric uh, regression equations. But if Austrians disagree, they have to fight. Can you just imagine um, 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 Murray fighting, um, uh, what's his name, Ludwig Lachmann? Ludwig Lachmann and Murray disagreed about equilibrium. Can you imagine them getting it on in, in the ring? I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, Milton Friedman is wrong here. If two Austrians disagree, uh, you know, I disagreed with Roger Garrison on, on the triangle or something. We don't have to fight, for God's sakes. You know, we, we just go back to the logic and we discuss it. So uh, Mises, I, I think, uh, makes a misstep here when he says that uh, since some people deduce incorrectly from natural rights, therefore natural rights is, is wrong. Well, some people uh, deduce wrong from empirical um, uh, stuff. Uh, Cardin Kruger just um, uh, had empirical stuff on the minimum wage. They, they got it all wrong. That means we should throw out uh, empirical um, um, uh, investigations? No. Well, there's a lot to this book. We're going to go through the rest of it over the subsequent weeks and subsequent shows. And you nobody would be better than Walter Block to wrestle with all the philosophical and logical assumptions in part one of this book. So, Walter, I want to thank you for your time. Jeff, thanks for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure. I want to recommend the book to people. We will post links to it with the show. We will also post links to uh, Hoppe's introduction and uh, some of the other articles which Walter Block mentioned Unfortunately, we can't give you the book as a free download or as a free readable PDF or HTML, but we can give you a discount. Just go to the Mises.org bookstore and use H-A-P-O-D for Human Action Podcast. You will get 10% off the purchase price of the book. And we're looking forward very much to going through the remainder of this book with people like Stephan Kinsella over the next coming weeks. So all that said, Walter, thanks again. And ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.